0: Today we uh, embark on a two-week series, just a little series, and uh, this two weeks of of sermons is uh, something that that really I just wanted to explore. It came up when I put out the uh, Facebook post, and this series uh, was one that that people on Facebook, somebody on Facebook said would be interesting to them, and it's also a series that, that I really wanted to explore, and, and kind of what happened is, is I think I knew so little about this topic that I didn't realize that I, I should plan more weeks, and so there is going to be a two-week series today, but this is going to be a series that... That, that I've determined, just through my study, uh, is not going to satisfy my questions. And we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, and, and even more than the Holy Spirit, we're going to be talking about the spiritual spirituality of Christianity. And in my study, I guess it just left me wanting more. And so we're going to do two weeks now, and we'll, we'll come back to this. I know it's a long ways, and you don't care yet, but we'll come back to this series next year uh, at some point and revisit this topic of the spirituality of Christianity. And, and so I hope it will just, it will kind of whet your appetite. Uh, and I want to begin with reading something that Matt and I wrote together several years ago, and uh, it's for a book that we will publish someday, but this is, this is kind of the idea behind the series. Spirituality is in. Across the American culture, there are very few things as in vogue. In our current millennium, people are flocking towards it like they did Elvis in the 50s and Hammer Pants in the 80s. Every medium, big and small, spiritual expression is growing like fire over thirsty Grass—that is to say, you can hardly miss it. It shows up on TV, on the bestsellers list, in movies, and through the ever-increasing popularity of spiritual groups. Spirituality is busted out like the next Harry Potter movie or the new American Idol winner. We probably need to update those references. And then we give some stats: fifty percent of people believe, fifty percent believe not only that all humans have souls, but that there exists an eternal. Life, 50% of people in America. Among 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S., being spiritual or close to God was the most selected among primary life goals. Most times we think 18 to 29-year-olds are just going away from the spiritual things, but it's their primary life goal for a majority of them. And then we go on to write, Of course, if we assume that this spiritual interest is translated into new Christian converts on fire for Christ, we would be sorely wrong. In fact, even a cursory look at the available statistics reveals a different story. The U.S. is currently the only nation in the world whose birth rate is higher than the rate in which people are coming to a saving faith in Christ. Did you catch that? It's The only nation in the world where the birth rate is higher than those coming to Christianity, which means it's the only nation in the world where the percentage of Christians is shrinking on a daily basis. Perhaps even more staggering, staggering maybe that the U.S. once deemed a Christian nation currently stands as the country with the fourth largest amount of people who do not subscribe to Christianity. Moreover, the percentage of Christian inhabitants is steadily declining. And then we go on to say, we cannot say that the problem is that Christianity is not spiritual, but rather that its inherent spirituality has been lost in a cacophony of habit and laziness. The sanctuary bell has become an uninteresting and uninviting noise, and those looking for more than just spiritual clatter have strayed far from the pulpit's voice. And those Christians looking for spiritual harmony are often met with broken notes driving them from church to church in search of the divine melody. This often leads Christians on one hand to become listless robots and on the other hand in some form or another hyper charismatic. To be honest with you I think I'm part of this problem. This problem that is lots of people want spirituality but they're looking at the church they're looking at Christianity and they're saying, that's not where I'm going to find it. I think I'm part of the problem because I say things like, I just don't feel close to God this morning and so it's going to be hard to worship. I don't really like the music this morning and so I'm not really going to worship. And people look at us and they go, that's not a very spiritual Religion let me be honest with you because I was preaching on this I don't make a habit of it But I was looking around this morning and if I was looking for something spiritual Then I would leave and I would go to the nearest yoga class I would leave this place and I would go search somewhere else if I was looking for something that I could classify as Spiritual I saw maybe listless robots this morning and I wonder why? Why is it that we, the Christian religion, the people who subscribe to Christianity, the church, the only true and real religion in our minds, something we claim so often, the only religion that can claim to be spiritually good has become so unspiritual that people are leaving it in order to find spirituality? And I think it happened because we have allowed for our spirituality to be Sucked dry, and this is—I guess—where this comes from. This is where it's coming from. This this series, this this two-week deal, It is simply that I think there has to be more. I think that what we are doing is not enough. I think that we are missing something, and I think you might be able to say the same just for yourself in your individual life. I i missing something. This doesn't seem like it's everything. It's not all that spiritual anymore. And you know that uh, maybe you come from a church where uh, a background, a Christian background where it's all about emotion, or maybe you come from one where it's all about tradition, but in both of those, it seems like something is missing, and, and I want to look at a story today that we know as the woman at the well, if you've been around church circles, and, and when you think of the woman at the well, usually it's, it's a passage of scripture that, that is kind of geared and, and thought about in a way that it's like, hey, lead hurting people to Jesus, and, and hurting people, Jesus is the answer, and it's kind of like this outreach passage, like let's evangelize and let's tell people how gracious and loving Jesus is. But, but in this story, as we'll see today, Jesus, in my mind, gives us the single best two and a half sentences on Christian spirituality that exists in all the world and exists in the Bible. And so I want to look at this story, and we'll really focus in at, on the end of the story. Uh, not quite the end, but but the, when Jesus really gets down to it. But all of the story is important for us really grasping what is going on between this woman that we're going to meet in just a second and Jesus. And let me just give you a, a, a background. Jesus is leaving, uh, leaving the Jerusalem area. He's leaving Jerusalem. Judea, because the persecution against him is mounting, and the religious leaders are hating him more and more, and so Jesus decides, hey, I got to get out of here, it's not my time to die yet, and so he heads back to Galilee, where he grew up, and where his strongest ministry is, and where he's even more respected, but he says this in John 4, 4 through 6, and this is where we'll pick up the story, now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sikard, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. This is interesting because you know the Jewish people in their background, they hated the Samaritan people. They despised the Samaritan people, and to be honest with you, They were racist against the Samaritan people. So racist against them that when they were going from point A to point B from Judea to Galilee, they would go around this area called Samaria to avoid having to have an interaction with this half breed, that's how they looked at them, of Jewish people that they didn't like and they didn't respect and they thought they had all the wrong worship practices and they disagreed with them on everything theological and everything historical and they just saw the world different. And so a good Jewish Person would go and they would take a big loop around Samaria to get to wherever they needed to go on the other side of the map. But it says to us, Jesus had to go to Samaria. It's as if Jesus is on a mission to have a conversation with somebody, and we will find out in a minute that that is true. He is on a mission to have an interaction with a woman who needs to have an interaction with him. And he sits down. A well at the end of verse 6 this is where we pick it up it was about noon notice that think about that I'll come back to that when a Samaritan woman came to draw water Jesus said to her will you give me a drink his disciples had gone into town to buy food the Samaritan woman said to him you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman how can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans Now, Jesus is sitting there at noon, and and the Bible doesn't put this little detail in there just for our interest, I mean, I've never, like, thought that ever, like, I wonder what time of day it was when Jesus fed the 5,000 people, that doesn't, it it doesn't really affect me, but here we have this little detail, it was about noon, and I think that detail is there because noon was the time of day when nobody, 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 nobody would have gone to draw water, Samaria is a very hot place. It's not a comfortable place in the middle of the afternoon. And so people went to draw water in the morning before the sun came up or in the evening after the sun went down. And here comes this poor little Samaritan woman trying to avoid everybody. And she's about to encounter Jesus who knows everything about her and is really the God of the universe. Can you just imagine like you're trying to get away from everything and you just want to have one of those veg days and then God sits down on your couch. It's like, wow, I I just wish I would have had this on my calendar, you know, but here she comes looking to avoid everybody, and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now, she's confused because of everything I've already told you. She's thinking, why is this man talking to me, let alone asking me to draw him water? And she's confused for a couple of reasons. You'll notice the words Samaritan woman are repeated. She's a Samaritan, and so Jewish people didn't talk to her. She's probably thinking, what is this guy doing here in the first place? He's obviously Jewish, but also because she's a woman, and Jewish men didn't talk to women. They weren't worthy of being talked to. They didn't matter to talk to. If you needed an opinion about something, it wasn't going to come if it was going to be in a good opinion from a woman in their thinking. And so she is shocked because she is everything that Jesus, Jesus is not supposed to be talking to a Samaritan woman. And then Jesus says this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus flips this conversation in a hurry. I mean, hi, how are you? Let's talk about spiritual things. And you may not pick that up just from this one sentence, but as the story moves, it's going to be obvious that Jesus has spiritual things in mind. And so Jesus flips this and he says, hey, I asked you for a drink, but if you knew who I was, then you would be asking me for living water. It's like the only time when it's okay for somebody to say, if you knew who I was, you know, like, do you know who I am? Maybe you know when people say that, right? is like the only time when that's acceptable for anybody to say. And she's like, man, do you know who I am? Because if you did, then you would have asked me for water. And listen to what this woman does. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it as did also his sons and his Livestock. So she brings the conversation back to the physical, back to the things she can touch and she can see and she can think about. She's holding a bucket and she's looking at Jesus. She's like, You don't have a bucket, man. And so even if you wanted to give me for water, even if I was smart enough to know who you are and I asked you for some water, there is no way you could have gotten the water because, hey, I'm the one with the bucket. And then she gives Jesus this little history lesson. She's like, "Hmm, Are you greater? And the guy who built this well, who's written about in the Bible, you may have heard of him. I mean, he was a big deal. Jacob, he's one of the, the patriarchs of you and me for Jews and Samaritans. Big deal. Put this well here, and we're still drinking out of it a lot of years later. In fact, people are still drinking out of that well today in the modern context. It's about 75 feet deep still, which is incredible. Are you greater than this guy? Who built the well for us that's going to last for thousands of years? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus doesn't care about the history lesson so much, but he takes it a step further spiritually. He makes it slightly more obvious that he's being spiritual, right? Because when he says, you will never thirst again, obviously this is this is not a physical thing. There is no water that exists where you take a drink of it and you never have to be thirsty again. Uh, but Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. Obviously, he's speaking in spiritual terms when he says, this water can well up and be eternal life within in you. He is obviously talking about something deeper, pun intended, than the well. He is talking about something spiritual. And you would think, at least reading backwards into the story, now think, you show up, you're trying to avoid everybody, you're a little shocked that, that, that this Jewish man is talking to you. And so you got to give this woman just a little bit of, a little bit of sensitivity in her answer because you're going to see that she doesn't get it. And in fact, it reminds me of a friend, his name's Ernie he was on that show uh, where where there was a group of contestants and I don't remember the name of the show, uh, but these contestants were in a studio and then they would go to the answers on the street and, and you would decide if you liked the guy's answers or not and, and Ernie got a question he was doing really well and then he got an obvious question right that I can't repeat because it involves a swear word. But Ernie said they ask you like 100 questions in a row and they give you about one second to answer and your mind's going so fast that you just start to make mistakes. And I think this woman and all of that is just a little bit caught up and this guy seems different and he's a man and he's talking to me and what is a Jew doing here and what is this living water he's talking about? And so she brings it right back to the physical and she said, Sir... Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. She's not an idiot, right? I mean, that's like if somebody said, if you said, can I have a dollar? And then you said, why are you asking me for a dollar? And the person said back to you, if you would have asked me for a dollar, then you would never, ever have to look for dollars again. You'd be like, get me some of that. I mean, wherever these dollars are that just keep coming forever and ever, that's the dollar I want. And in a, an area starved for water, thirsty for water, Samaria, very hot, wells were hard to come by, it wasn't like the drills we have now, it wasn't like going to your faucet, water's a big deal, and Jesus says, I have this water that can well up inside you and be eternal and you'll never have to come back here, and she's like, hey, that, I'll take it, Sold. It's like winning the lottery. I'll never have to come here again. I won't have to have conversations that are weird like this one ever again. And I can just live my life in peace. You see, here's the problem with this woman's thinking. She is focused on the bucket. I mean, she is focused on these physical things in her life. And so when Jesus has this direct encounter to her, even calling her to eternal life, she can't take her eyes off of the things that really matter, the deeper things, the things of our souls, the things in places where people do not see. And so now this, you've already seen my buckets, but I have some buckets here and i think the truth is both for christians and non-christians alike we have these buckets in our lives and we think if i just fill up this bucket then i'll be satisfied if i just if this bucket gets filled then i'll be satisfied I mean, here's one, and and I run into this a lot, and you'll have to take these as metaphorical, but uh, the seasons, right? And and so many people that I've known in my life just think, when I get to the next stage in life, when it's Christmas, then I'll be satisfied. When it's summer, then I'll be satisfied. That happens on a yearly basis in Oregon. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for summer. And people just think that something magical is going to take place, but it's even worse, right? Like, when I get to high school, then... I'll feel good about myself. When I get to college, then every, just get through graduation and then I'll feel good about myself. Oh, when I get a degree and I get that career that I want, then I'll feel good about myself. The next thing, the next situation in life, there are so many people who are like, "When I get to the next season of my life, then the bucket will be filled and I will be satisfied." For some, that next season is just relationships and it's like when I when I meet the next girl or boy, and when that person, when the perfect person comes into my life, then I'll feel good about myself. When I have children, and and they are perfect, and they do everything right, then I will be satisfied, and my bucket will be filled, and they're running around, just fill up my bucket, fill up my bucket. For some, it's just looking better. They're like, if I make my outside look better, and I get a nicer car, and I have more friends, and I get more popularity, and I get more fame, then I'll feel good about myself. I just need to fill up this bucket right here and make everybody think that everything is good and then the bucket will be filled and I will feel good about myself for some and sometimes this even paints itself as spiritual but we know it's not it's like if I just clean everything up I and mean, if I start to do a better job at work and I remove some sins from my life and I'm nicer to people and I give to the poor, then everything is just gonna be clean and neat and this bucket can be filled up with soap suds and everything will be better. For some, it's a bigger bucket. It's like, man, if I could just get more stuff, right? If I could just have a bigger house and I and I could get more stuff and I could just, if there's more friends and more family and more money and a bigger job and a better life and a bigger office and a better view at my house, just get the bucket bigger and, and don't put leaves in it. For some it's the opposite, it's like a smaller bucket. If I could just minimize and this is the cool new thing, right? Like I'm going to build a 200 square foot house and then my life will feel satisfied and the like, I'll just fill up the small bucket because the other buckets are all too big. I'm never going to fill those up. So just like this, if I could just if I could just minimize and and shrink things down and be more efficient, then my bucket could get filled up and I could be satisfied. And for some it's like the gold bucket. If I just had more money and and if I get a better job and I make more money, 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 then I'll be satisfied. And this woman at the well is no different. She's like, hey, you got to have a bucket to get some water. You got to have a bucket to get filled up where I come from. And Jesus is looking at her, and I think so many of you. And Jesus is saying, not about the bucket about the bucket. I mean, I know people who go from one thing to the next, 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 thinking, I just got to find the right bucket. And I'll tell you what, an empty bucket is always an empty bucket. And the only thing, the only person who can fill any of these buckets whether it be your family or a cleaner life or a bigger life or the new season or the gold season, it doesn't matter. The only thing that can fill that up, the only person who can fill up any of your buckets is the person Jesus. I mean, we're sitting 2,000 years away from this woman here in America, and we're just so focused on the buckets. And Jesus is saying, it's not about the bucket. Not about the bucket. Jesus knows that it's gonna to be tough to break her concentration from the buckets of life. And so he says, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Here's the thing, sometimes the only thing the only thing that can take our minds off of the buckets is looking deep in our souls, recognizing that there are things wrong, there are problems, there are sins, there are areas where we know we are being disobedient to God even if we think we don't believe in God that cannot be fixed by a new bucket. Jesus is like, okay, let's be spiritual. And he th- I think Jesus, being very smart, knows that the thing that can break her concentration from the physical and move it to the spiritual, you know, these deep, dark places in her soul that cannot be fixed by a new bucket. They cannot be fixed by avoiding everybody and coming out there at noon. They can't be fixed by more water, not having to be at the well anymore. They must be fixed by something Greater. This woman she's not giving up easily, John four nineteen and through twenty, Sir, the woman said, "I can see that you are a prophet, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in." Jerusalem. Arthur Pink, who was one of my great-grandfather's favorite commentary writers, said this, the effect of the woman's conscience being exercised by Jesus, speaking of her sin, is to talk about worship. And I find that interesting, and that's a nice thought. However, I think the, the bigger deal here is that she tries to deflect this very intimate, very real, very emotional topic onto something else. Psychologists describe one defense mechanism as into. Intell- intellectualization, intellectualization, there it is. Uh, and it's a common defense mechanism. And they describe it as the overemphasis on thinking when confronted with an unacceptable impulse, situation, or behavior without employing any emotions whatsoever to help meditate and place the thoughts into an emotional human context. You see what this woman does is she intellectualizes it. She says, oh, you want to talk about the deep spiritual things? Let me talk about the highly theological things. And if there is a defense mechanism that is common in church today, it's this. Like, are you struggling with any sin? well, let's talk about what sin is for a minute. I mean, there's so many Greek words that could, that could be summarized for sin and, and, and let's talk about denomination and let's talk about uh, these other theoretical things because you don't want to deal with the emotion that, that is caused by these real sins that are inside of you. If you're in a connect group, you know this. It's so much easier to be intellectual than it is to be spiritual. It's so much easier to talk about the theories of Christianity than it is to talk about the difficulties of Christianity. And Christians, most Christians will spend most of their lives like this, going, oh yeah, that's a deep conversation. Let's talk about the theories. Let's talk about who's right and who is wrong. And that is what this woman woman does brilliantly here, because she hits on a topic that she knows is important to both of them, She brings up worship, so she automatically sounds spiritual. And now she has a question for Jesus to answer that isn't about her. Sir, I know you're a prophet, so what mountain should we be worshiping on? The Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshiped in Samaria on their own mountain. And this well actually sits at the base of that mountain. So not only does she have like the perfect out, but she can point and be like, hey, we think we should worship up there. What do you think, prophet man? And I'll tell you, some of you will never grow spiritually because you intellectualize everything. You don't want to go deeper. You don't want to have real conversations. You simply want to talk about the ideas of Christianity and not about your Christianity. It's an epidemic. And we train that into our our Bible college students and our seminary students. It's like, I remember very few conversations about my spiritual life, and I remember lots of conversations about spiritual theories, Christian theology, and it trickles down into the churches so that none of us are comfortable talking about things like how many husbands we have had. Even in this church where uh, we have a church where people can share hurts and struggles and, and not be judged, and I think almost everybody who is a part of this church knows that, but yet it persists this intellectualization of our spiritual lives. And here's Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus is about to give us one of the, the best pictures the most important statements about Christian spirituality in all the world. But before he does, he makes sure to declare truth as true. And it's important because some people... Based on what Jesus probably says next, we'll go, well, we can kind of throw truth out, and you can have truth the way you want it, and truth doesn't matter. But Jesus takes one sentence, uh, two sentences, and says, hey, by the way, before I tell you the key truth here, I want you to know that we're right and you're wrong. I want you to know that what we believe is true and right, and what you believe is inaccurate, it's wrong. But, yet... And this is so key. This is is a passage that I think ought to change your life this morning. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Who's heard this verse before? Who knew it was spoken to the woman at the well? Far less. I wasn't one of those people. It's a a passage of scripture that's often ripped out of context and and just placed on a wall or whatever. And I think that's fine with this verse uh, to take it out of context far more than other verses. But, But here's the reality of what Jesus is saying. He is here now. He's looking at her, right? The Messiah. And he is saying now a time has come when Worship cannot be confined to a location, and God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, and it must be void of, not void of external forms, it must be not focused on the external things of life. And so, uh, let me read you what Archibald Robinson said, and then I want to break this down briefly. The Samaritan woman must learn that worship is not validated by a traditional place, but by a transcendent power. So three questions. First of all, what is worship? Worship simply is a Greek word that we translate to worship, and and all it really means is to crouch, crawl, or fawn like a dog at his master's feet, just that. And, And so when you talk about worship, and then you look at the Bible and you read the word worship, simply what it means is bowing down before somebody in order to exalt them. It means you are lowering yourself in order to raise somebody else up. So, when it comes to Christian worship, the idea is that we are lowering ourselves in order to exalt and lift God up. Now, here's the second question What does it mean to worship in spirit? Spirit does not contain the definitive article here, meaning it doesn't say the spirit. And it's pretty widely believed that we're not talking about, the, Jesus was not talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about your spirit. And so when he says that the spirit, the worshipers must worship in spirit, he's talking about us worshiping, not just in our externals, but that place inside of us that can communicate with God, but nobody else can see, touch, feel, look at. It's that spot in us where there's something different. It's that spot in us that has those thoughts when we lay down at bed at night and the music is off and the TV isn't on and we are alone with ourselves, that deep, deep place inside of us. To worship in spirit is to worship in the new realm which God has revealed to people. And here's the question that as I was preparing this sermon and and last few weeks has really been on my head uh, and in my heart, I guess, is this, if you were deaf, mute, paralyzed, and blind would what you do on a Sunday or whenever you're talking about worshiping, would that be worship? If you were deaf, mute, paralyzed, and blind, would your actions still be worship? Would you still be lowering yourself in order to raise God up? I know this happens in me uh, on Sunday mornings and when it happens this way. When I'm singing and the band decides for whatever reason, because they had practiced it or whatever, to go into the course again and of it to the verse. And I'm expecting the verse in my spirit. And, and I know the difference between wor- worshiping externally and worshiping in the spirit when I don't care and I keep singing. Because when I'm worshiping in the Spirit, it's, it's something different. I'm communicating something to God, and I'm going to keep communicating it without Dizier, who's going in the right direction up here, you know? It doesn't matter to me anymore. But when you're like, oh, embarrassed, man, I sang the wrong thing, you're not worshiping in the Spirit. You're just singing a song. You're only embarrassed because you were singing, because everybody else was singing, and not because you're having an interaction with God. I know when I'm worshiping in the Spirit because I make mistakes in my worship, and it doesn't bother me. I'm not always that way, so don't take it as I'm always that way, but that's the reality of of how I see it in myself. And here's the other question. What does it mean to worship in truth? And that is simple. It means that the things that we are saying are true, and, and it scares me a little because I think we could throw any lyric up on here especially if it's a song that you guys know really well and you would sing along just fine and we could just put in fake lyrics even and, and you would not care a hoot, things that aren't even true. I mean, think about some of these things. Uh, this is the one that bothers me the most and I just kind of have the, the funny ones maybe, but there's other theologically just inaccurate things, hopefully not in the music we do, but in Christian music that is sang all around the country. How about this one? These are the days of your servant David rebuilding the temple of praise. The song is Days of Elijah. David didn't build the temple. And I know it's not like super theological, but it annoys me. It's like you just took the Bible and you just changed it because it fit lyrically. That's not worshiping in truth. That's worshiping falsely. How about this one? And I hate this one. We're never doing this again, Brandon. In all I do, I worship you. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? In all I do, I worship you, dirty head liar. I mean, like, really? Really? When you yelled at your wife yesterday, worshiping God, I got it down. And everything I do, I worship. That's, a, that's not true. That's just like a false statement. And sometimes I sing it differently because of that. Or how about this one, Christmas song? No crying he made. That, that is heresy. I, I mean, just to be 100% honest with you, because what it does is it makes Jesus less than human. And as Christians, we believe that God was fully man and no fully human baby has ever not cried. I mean, it's like when we picture Jesus never stubbing his toe or never or never doing anything that hurt himself or never crying because he's got this halo on his head. It's heresy. That's all it is, and we sing right along, going, "Oh, I like this one. This one's old. You know, I mean, I, I know this one, and it's old, and so it's got to be right. I mean, some guy 500 years ago sang about heresy, and so that means it's right. Nobody ever cut it out. It's not true." And and so when you just, when you show, and oh, by the way, right now you're going, well, okay, Jesus, you know, worship is like, I can worship in anything, it's not just Sunday mornings, but Jesus is talking most likely about corporate worship settings. Her question is not about like, is everything you do worship? Are you trying to worship when you're at work and things like that? The question is more along the lines of, should we be going to sing to Jesus and having church here or there? And Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come because I'm here and I sit in front of you when worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. They will exalt God by lowering themselves somewhere deep inside of them and not just externally, and they will do it in ways that are true and right. Jesus is saying that someday... And in his coming, people are no longer going to be focused on the mountain in worship, but on God's mercy and majesty. They will no longer focus on the ridge, but they will focus on God's righteousness. They will no longer focus on the bluff, but on the beauty of the Lord. They will no longer focus on the peak, but on God's passion and his purity for humanity. They will no longer focus on the hill, but on his holiness. They will no longer focus on the location, but on the love that God has for all people. For they are the kind of worshipers that God seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must, must, must worship in the spirit and in truth. That word must is used in John 3, 7, just a chapter before. You must be born again. Pretty serious, right? I mean, to be a Christian, you must be born again. He's spiritually saying you have to have a new life in me what so Jesus is saying, you must. It's used in 3.14, the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Jesus must die on a cross for the sins of the world. In John 3.30, he must become greater. I must become less. I mean, these are pretty musts. And then the next time we read it is in our story, Jesus must go through Samaria and people must worship in Jerusalem at that time. But now that Jesus is here and now that we say 2,000 years later in the era that is called the history of Christianity, we must Worship in spirit and in truth. And here's two sad things. Just There's so many people with their buckets. Like, God, I just, need, I just need to get filled up. I just need to get filled up. And then they look at our churches and they're like, those people don't look filled up at all. And it's because the other sad part, 2,000 years later, And we're still so focused on the mountain. We don't say the mountain anymore. We say things like this. In the history of our church, if we were just on the property, then I could really like worship on a Sunday morning. But we haven't accomplished that yet. Or we think about this. Where are we meeting? Like we've shown up in this school and it's like, oh, well now we're in a school, but that other building was really beautiful and had stained glass windows. And so it's it's harder for me to worship here what mountain? I mean, the contemporary mountain of the school or kind of that traditional mountain of the church. Or how about lighting? Man alive. We had lots of conversations about the lighting. It was about a 50-50 split in our church when we were at McMinimins, whether we should have it darker or lighter. And it's like, what mountain? The light mountain or the dark mountain? I mean, because that's, that has a huge effect on my worship. I mean, whether it's light or dark. And I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to worship really if it's dark or it's light. And uh, and song choice, uh, I mean seriously, song choice, and, and I want to tell you this, I forgot to say this in my, my annual meeting last week, but the, we have a very nice church, so people are never mad, there's never going to be a worship war in our church, and I appreciate that, and I love that, but I know in your heads, I know in your heads, and even in your hearts, that you make the excuse, I don't know this song very well. And you say like, oh, we had a lot of new songs today and then Brandon and I talk about the set and we've done the song like 10 to 15 times over the course of the last two years and it's on the top 100 on CCLI. And so we're not gonna do more than five new songs this next year, you have our word. And it was going to be zero, but I wanted to do a song that everybody who doesn't like new songs is gonna like, Grace Greater Than All My Sins. And so we decided to increase it to five, we'll do that song in a couple weeks. But it's like song choice, they didn't do my song today. You know who didn't think about that? Paul sitting in a prison with poop up to his knees, shackled, ready to be tortured in a prison that stunk, not knowing if he was going to live. He's like not thinking, I wonder what song, because I can't get behind this. They're singing song. And and this leads me to my next one, the quality of song. Oh, man, Brandon made a mistake today, and so I couldn't worship. I mean, come on. (sighs) It's so frustrating, and people with their buckets are coming on a Sunday morning, and they look at you, and they go, wow, those people don't have any spirituality because they're focused on Brandon's miss note. It really bothers me, and we have the nicest church, so I would have been fired at other churches because our church is wonderful, But, but this is a reality. People look at me. And they say, like, you're such, you're such an expressive worshiper. And I've told you, sometimes that's just because I'm trying to worship and I can't get to that place in my spirit. But I'm going to be more nice to myself and say, it's because, and I'm, I say this a lot, you know, it doesn't really matter the music because I'm not a musical person, and it's, it's a half lie. You know why the music doesn't matter to me? Because sometime long ago, I learned that when I worship in the spirit, it doesn't matter if the band messes up or if they sing my song. It doesn't matter if it's lit or dark. It doesn't matter if it's a new song or an old song. It doesn't matter if we're in a gym or in an old-fashioned traditional sanctuary. I have great worship moments. I've had great worship moments with high school kids and youth group. And when I go teach the retirement home Bible study and they're playing some CD that's at the highest octave that any human can possibly sing and I can't sing along. And I have powerful worship moments there. And sometimes I sell myself short. It's a false humility is all it is. When you see me and I'm expressive, it's because in large part I've learned to worship in spirit and in truth. And there are too many people sucking dry the spirituality of American Christianity because they are focused on the stupid mountain. And there are people with their buckets going, I can't get filled up, and they're looking at us saying, maybe this church, maybe a church can fill up my bucket, and then they show up, and, and all they can see is people who are focused on the mountain. I'll tell you, just in our conversations, we do a thing called uh, Serve, and, and one of the questions we ask is about, like, deep spiritual experiences with God, moments that have really mattered, and I'm amazed in our congregation how many people have not had a deep spiritual moment that they can look back on with God and say that was impactful to me. And I think it's because for a lot of people young and old alike the question is about the mountain and not about your personal devotion to God. I mean Kevin I remember when he got back from his mission trip to Africa He was just blown away because over there, they're like lucky to get an iPod plugged in and then people have these amazing moments with God. In a different country, probably where they can't pull up the CCLI top 100 on the internet and learn the songs ahead of time, they have these powerful experiences of worship where they have real life interactions in their spirit with the God of the universe and they speak truth to him, lowering themselves and exalting him up with a crappy speaker somebody's iPod I know that a good environment can help us to worship in spirit and truth because we are beings who are artistic and we are beings who are logical and we are beings who like things in a certain way and have our senses and things like that I get that and I understand that and we do we are doing our best and we always trying to continue to move forward to move away distractions and to help you worship in spirit and truth. But at some point, you have to make a decision. And the problem with the church, and you can write this down, maybe this will help you remember, for so many years is that worship has been centered around tradition or emotion and not centered around our spiritual devotion. You've probably been to churches that fall into one of those two categories. It's either this tradition, this thing that we go through and we sing these old songs and we have a liturgy and we make sure we do things exactly right or it's this hyper-emotional charismatic thing. When people leave, they it's like, wow, that was cool and I'll think about Jesus again when I have that same emotional interaction and it's not real worship either. So don't think I'm knocking the old-fashioned way because I'm also knocking the new-fashioned way. There has to be something else and that something else is our spiritual Devotion. And when we worship corporately, I think we can refine the spirituality if we take our minds off of the mountains and we focus our eyes on Jesus. And we lower ourselves in the deep parts of our souls, speaking truth, thinking truth, knowing truth in our hearts. Let me say it to you one more time worship has been centered around tradition or emotion and not centered around our spiritual devotion have you ever experienced truly powerful worship by yourself alone maybe maybe in a church maybe it's some type of christian event Actually, I actually have a theory, because a lot of times these events are, are uh, seen at, like Christian worship concerts, and, and I have this theory about that. And You go to a Chris Tomlin concert, for example, and you already know you're going to like the music. You already know that they're going to suck you in emotionally, that the lighting will be perfect because they've spent millions of dollars. You know that he's going to say the perfect word and have the perfect story. And so you go and you leave and you think when you come back to our church, if only they had had the perfect lighting and the perfect song and the the perfect little speech right before the music, then I could have worshipped. But I think the reality is you go to the Chris Tomlin concert going, I'm going to worship in spirit and in truth today. And they could put aside all the lights, and they could put aside the perfect stories, and they could put aside the perfect music, and they could have me sing up there. But you came ready to have a real, true interaction in your spirit where you lower yourself and you elevate God. And so that is the reason, I believe, that people have these grand worship experiences when they go to something different. But when you show up on a Sunday morning, you think things like, I hope they do my song, I hope they do a good job, I hope that the curtain doesn't fall down. I hope that, I hope that, I hope that. But you don't show up saying, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to worship in spirit and truth because that is how worshipers must worship. And so you don't have those same types of spiritual moments here. And can you imagine, can you just, just, just I mean, can you imagine people We talked last week, we had our annual meeting and we're gonna be inviting people in here in this next year and people are gonna come and I think we have a pretty good church and this church, if it doesn't sound that way from this sermon, does so many things well and so many things that I'm proud of and I love this church and I cannot imagine leaving this church and I think about pastors who just leave for a bigger paycheck or a more famous job and and I don't have that bucket anywhere because I just really like my church and, and I cannot imagine leaving you people. So let me say that. But can you imagine if each of us took all those good things we already do and when we came to corporately worship, we said, it's not gonna be about the mountain today. Brandon can mess up, even Graham can mess up and it's gonna be okay back there on his base and and that's gonna be fine and the curtain can fall and they could not do my song, even though we try to do your song, just so you know, we we try to make it so that everybody's getting songs and we're really trying to get your songs and we love you, that's why we do it. I'm not gonna think about any of that, but I know that me and God, are going to have a spiritual interaction today, that is truth. And if we throw up some lyric right here, like Jesus was not fully man, you don't sing along. You just don't keep going because everybody's looking, and yeah, you know, like you, you're actually in your spirit having an interaction with the God of the universe. Can you imagine the people that came in with their buckets, <laughs> be like, oh, that, "This bucket's stupid," because I've never experienced anything like this before. I mean, these people have something that no bucket ever can give me. Because they're not focused on mountains, they're focused on Jesus. Will you pray with me, Lord? You know I'm as guilty as many in this room. And God, for me, it's hard on Sunday mornings because I do see everything that goes wrong. And I don't just mean our band, I mean everything that goes wrong for me and for people setting up and everything, God. And it's really hard sometimes to to separate myself from that and to have a true spiritual interaction with you, Lord. And uh, God, I pray that you would change that in my heart. You've done a lot of work in me through the years in that regard, a ton of work. I think it's because I've worked with so many people that have such different Christian backgrounds and it's been just amazing for me to see how you can meet me God in a retirement home Bible study or a kindergarten Sunday school class in a real way when I am open to it and I pray God for the people that sit in front of me I love these people but God nobody would ever call our church if they came and they visited once a spiritual church and partly what they mean by that God is that we don't speak in tongues at least not very often God and not corporately we don't have anything crazy going on? Nobody's falling down in the aisles. Nobody's carrying flags in the back. Nobody's falling down on the ground. It's laid in the spirit, Lord, but part of it, I think, is also real. That when we worship you, God, sometimes, oftentimes, too often, I think, Lord, we are going through the motions, and the melody that we sing is not divine. It is only earthly. And we are sitting here in front of you, with your very presence in our midst, thinking about the mountain. I pray that you would change that in all of our hearts today, right now. Jesus, for anybody that came in this room today, that's just been holding a bucket to the sky thinking this will fill me up, I pray that they would come to know you And they would be filled up this morning by your living water. And God, one pastor said it, that they would become, God, a well today. The very place where your presence, your water, your spirit resides, Lord. God, move us forward. You've moved this church so far. I mean, the love and the unity in this church blows me away compared to where it was at just a handful of years ago. The organization of our church has moved so far forward, God. Lord, the the Sunday service even and us getting out of the way with mistakes through technology and music and how many us I used to say in my sermons, Lord, we've come so far. But Lord, we need to be taken away by your spirit as we allow for our spirits to lower themselves and worship you. And I pray that you would do that now. Lord, we love this church, but we want more. We love this church, but we want something deeper, something greater. Lord, we don't want people going to the yoga class to find spirituality. We want them coming to Creekside Bible Church. So do something more in each of us. In your name, amen.